You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, we thank you for joining us each and every week. We also appreciate you being part of the Hazard Ground community on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Find us everywhere. Speaking of being part of the Hazard Ground community, I want to take a quick moment before we get to this week's episode to thank our sponsors. Most of all, Amazon. This promotion has been running with us for quite some time, and it's the easiest way you can help out great veterans organizations all across America. Simple. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner right there on the homepage. Do your normal Amazon shopping. We get a kickback from all the money that you spend from Amazon, and we donate that directly to all of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Also, check out our sponsors page, hazardground.com slash sponsors, like Cabela, Moose Jaw, Knife Country USA, Patagonia. These are people that have supported us in our efforts here at the Hazard Ground podcast. We want you to support them back. So again, go to our website, hazardground.com slash sponsors and check out all the deals you can get with our sponsors right there on our website reminder just to leave a rating and review on itunes if you can really simple really short just let us know what you think let us know how much you like the show what you'd like to see changed also offer up any guests that you know anybody that you know that you think would be a great guest on the hazard ground we'd love to hear from them so you can do it all there on the ratings and review sections on itunes and of course that helps us spread the word about the hazard ground podcast now on to this week's episode joining us this week is a retired Retired Lieutenant Colonel Infantry Officer, Ranger, and Delta Force Operator who had a very unique and interesting role in the War on Terror. He now owns a company called Tiger Swan that specializes in leadership. His name is Jim Reese, and he joins us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jim, welcome. Thank you for being here. Good morning. All right, Jim. Well, look, a very interesting story as uh, we learn more about the details of the beginning of the War on Terror, and you were right at the crossroads of it. But let's start back at the beginning and how and why you got into the Army. Yeah, wow. Geez. You know, it's funny you say that. You know, years ago, I used to say, I'm never going to be one of those old guys that talks, you know, war stories. And now I am. (laughs) You (laughs) You know, I'm 55 years old and I'm an old guy. And uh, you know, I, 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 I see the young, young soldiers and sailors and airmen getting on the airplanes now. And it's very prideful for me to watch them because they are the new heroes of this world. For me though, it was, you know, it wasn't something I had planned. I had a little brother who wanted to be an airborne ranger from the time he was about 10 years old. And he did 17 enlisted in the army. And he is, he's famous in the, in the ranger community. Me, I went to college, thought I was going to go to the NFL one day. That was, that was a sad, sad story. That's that's funny. I had the same story. That's weird. (laughs) Yeah. That, that lasted about one week in summer camp, my (laughs) freshman year, you know, (laughs) when I, when I got to college and saw these guys that were nine times bigger than me and I was getting my ass kicked all over the place. But, uh, I did a couple of years in college and then lost my scholarship. And, you know, my dad, you know, went home, dad crying, boo hoo. My dad said, Hey, you know, get a job, join the Peace Corps or join the army, but you're not coming home and just being a, you know, being a schmo and uh, called my little brother who was at 175 in the Rangers down in Savannah. He was an NCO and gave me the name of his recruiter. Literally that afternoon, I drove over to the recruiter's office, gave my sob story and signed an airborne Ranger contract uh, 30 minutes later. And the rest is kind of history. Wow. Uh, 
Yeah. So I enlisted, you know, I enlisted, um, kind of neat thing when I was, when I went to, I guess when I was at the E5 board, the battalion commander at the time was a guy named Buck Kernan, uh, who eventually turned out to be a retired four-star. He was the, uh, Supreme allied commander. Uh, and it's just, it's still a good friend of these days. He said to me, he goes, Hey, Jim, you know, Hey, Ranger Reese, why don't you, you know, you've got all these college credits. Why don't you become an officer? And I told him, sir, I hate officers. I don't, <laughs> never wanted to, you know, I kind of, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid of the Ranger, you know, Ranger enlisted Ranger NCO. Uh, and then about a year later, he came back to me and he got me a deal where I was able to go back to the same school I had. And his close friend was, uh, the, the, the commanding general of 28th infantry division, which is the Pennsylvania national guard. So the bottom line is they got me a deal where I was able to back to school. I was able to go active with the, with the guard, with the Lurch unit in Pennsylvania, which had a bunch of old Rangers in it too, including my brother. Uh, why I did that. Be, and then I'd spent a year back in school, got my degree and then they commissioned me. So I did a bunch of years in the Rangers as a, you know, enlisted NCO and then commissioned as a, second lieutenant in the infantry and then went back to the rangers what what time frame is this year wise so 1982 okay uh 1982 is when i enlisted and then um then went back to school in 88 and then got commissioned in 89 all right so So, this is even before desert storm oh absolutely so i mean as Desert Storm is starting to gear up and everything else, I mean, what, what what's going on in your career? And uh, do you end up over there in, in Saudi Arabia, Iraq area? No, we don't. Uh, you know, that was devastating for the JSOC community and especially for the Rangers. You know, one company went, uh, Kurt Fuller, uh, General Kurt Fuller, good friend. He, you know, he took his company at B Company 175. And to be very candid with you, I'm trying to think where the heck I was. Um I might have been in two seven five at the time. I'm trying. God, I'm trying to think. I'm, I I don't know, but I did. We did not go. I was in the Rangers, but only one company from the Rangers went uh, for Desert Storm, and a small slice from JSOC went, uh, which, as you can imagine, was pretty disheartening for the JSOC sure, community. Yeah. Well, but uh, you guys did get your opportunity in Somalia in, you know, Black Hawk Down is just more commonly correct. known, Mogadishu. Did you end up there? Correct. Did not. <laughs> um, did not. Missed that one, too. Matter yeah. of fact, uh, I was at the advanced course as a captain uh, getting ready to come back to the Rangers, so I missed that one. Wow. Yep, so so you're, you're 0 for 2 at this point. 0 for 2 at this point. Really got hot and heavy for me uh, when I find – so I went back to the Rangers, then um, – then got recruited for Delta. Okay. Went through went through select you know assessment selection for Delta. Um, that was a whole interesting aspect there. Uh, it was a great time, but you know, I had the deal was the Delta was starting to do really for the first time, and this was a, an, an initiative by General at the time was a guy by the Major Tony Thomas, who's now General Tony Thomas, the commander of SOCOM. He started an initiative to start recruiting heavily for officers in Delta out of the Ranger Regiment, which had never been done before, had never been done before. Yeah, because I mean, don't you typically have to have your tab before you can go Delta, your Special Forces tab? Uh, no, you don't. Okay. You either had to, you either had to, be, had to be a Ranger okay. or SF. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and to be very candid with you, you didn't have to even have a tab. You don't really? have to. They, re- they recruit 
we rec- Delta recruits from the whole entire army. Um, great story. I love to tell about Delta. One of my OTC instructors who was famous long gun guy, sniper, he got recruited from the 82nd airborne as a crane operator. Wow. He, he was a heavy wheeled mechanic crane operator out of the 82nd airborne. We went to recruiting, went to selection, made it. And then, you know, then Delta put him through, I, I think Ranger school, the Q course and all that. But again, you know, the way Delta recruits, they're really looking for, you know, someone with this very, you know, interesting um, psychological profile. And he was a guy who fit that. And again, you know, spent 20 some years in Delta and was famous. There. Jim, not, you don't have to go into specific, but what are some of those traits that, that they're looking for? Kind of give me some adjectives to describe it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting too, which, you know, which I was, you know, I, I was lucky to very kind of understand some of those traits, you know, with all the years I went through. So, you know, one of them is, you get a lot of folks that are, are very individualistic and and not in a bad way, but guys that are kind of loners, you know, the, 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 the primary uh, profile is not someone who you think is the quarterback of the football team, you know, and rah, 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 and big groups. And uh, you know, we're, you see a lot in the Rangers, Delta's really the complete opposite. So you're not looking, looking for, for gregariousness. No, we're not looking for guys that are, are quiet underneath the radar screen. Um, definitely a type personality, but guys that are uh, musicians, artists, rock climbers, you know, um, guys that like to fish that like to, you know, hunters, guys that are out there on their own. And really, I mean, they truly are the Jason Bournes, of uh, of our society. You know, it's it's weird because what we know about the military and the army is that everything is about the guy next to you, right? It's always about the team. It's always about a group effort and everything else. And this is so counterculture to what we know about the military. But yet that makes sense because to do what Delta operators have to do, you're basically operating alone 99% of the time. It, you're, you're right. And I'll tell you, when I was in the Rangers in my early years, and early as an officer, I'd watch the senior NCOs go away to selection. And I was, and, and again, I didn't know much about it. I mean, I, 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 you know, the Rangers were very close to Delta and we trained together and all these things, but you just didn't know the secret sauce. And I was surprised at the, the Ranger NCOs that wouldn't come back. And the ones that did come back, again, I'm thinking, I mean, I can think of three right off the bat that went to selection multiple times they were physical studs. Um, some of them got hurt, but now when I see them, they were, you know, the middle linebacker, the quarterback. They were at the Rangers. They are famous. I mean, and unbelievable Rangers, unbelievable soldiers, but they were just kind of missing some of those pieces that the Delta and, and remember this profile is not people just don't pull this out of their ass. This is 37 plus years of psychological profiling right. and the psychologists that work at Delta that literally shape what a Delta operator looks like. And uh, it's, 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 it's very interesting. And so, you know, through the years I'd see these guys come back and was shocked, but until I got there, 
then I realized it. But I would even tell you, me, my personality, you know, if you looked at, a, you know, a scale of one to 10 was the profile, you know, and five being that sweet spot, you know, I was probably an eight or a nine. Well, I, I know that for a fact. I was on the high side of the profile. I enjoy being by myself sometimes, but I'm still kind of the team ball player. And, and, and there was a story. I had a, I had a command sergeant major who in my, in my troop, first name, Mark, uh, and the Delta guys that hear this will know exactly who I'm talking to was again, a very famous ranger. But I remember years later, we, we were, I asked him a question. I said, I said, Mark, you know, um, I always wondered why we do all these things and we'll sit around, we'll have a couple of beers afterwards, but then boom, everybody takes off, you know, and, and we don't really hang out. We're in the Rangers, you know, the platoons hang out together, families hang out together. I mean, it's just a big family community. And he kind of looked at me as we're drinking a beer and he turned to me and says, Hey, sir, remember Eagles are not a flocking bird. And I kind of sat there and looked at him. And I said, and it kind of went bing, 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 because you know, our, Everyone else calls us eagles. You know, when we get on the helicopters, you'll hear the task force guys say, you know, you know, five one coming out, eight eagles on board. And he it, it really hit home because that's what we are. We're eagles, and eagles are not a flocking bird, and we're individuals. And after 9-11, when we kicked off really in Iraq, it was the first time that we really went out and fought sustained wise as a squadron. Really? Yeah. You know, Somalia, you know, we, you know, we went to Panama, a squadron went Somalia, a squadron went and, but they fought in troops, but in Iraq, we fought pretty much for the first time for long periods of time as a sustained operation as a squadron. Now, so, what, what was the philosophical change in that? Was it need-based mission-based? What was it? Yeah, absolutely. Need-based and mission. Um, you know, JSOC, Delta, the tears inside JSOC, you know, there's, there's the mantra of JSOC says, yep. we, we, we will become what you need us to be. And, you know, you know, after 9-11, the ability to deploy squadrons with a task force headquarters and bring this entire task force of JSOC forces, not only to Iraq, but to Afghanistan and other places in the world that we started building these task force to do manhunting and start, you know, hunting Al Qaeda and these other transnational terrorists became critical. And, uh, and so we, we had to reshape and revamp our operations and, and our task organization. Now, Jim, let me ask you, I mean, the knee jerk reaction is I think that's a force multiplier, right? If you take an individual who chews gum and kicks ass religiously and another individual who chews gum and kicks ass religiously and you put them together, you would think that you would have a lot of chewing gum and a lot of ass kicking going on. But was that the case when you guys first started operating together? Because it almost seems like you're looking at two north ends of the magnet that would repel each other. Well, I mean, you you hit a great point there. Think of you, let me put it this way. Think of yourself as an officer in an organization like I am. that. <laughs> so here I am. I'm a troop commander, right? Mm -hmm. 35, E8s and E9s. Maybe a couple E7s and I'm the one officer in the room. And Oh, by the way, when I first, you know, when I first took over what I had a year of, you know, OTC training under my belt. And now you come in and now you go to an operation in the Balkans with your troop. 
talk about a leadership challenge when you're not the smartest guy in the room. Used to be. Used to be the guy was tactically and doctrinally sound and you take input. Now you're the guy that now you've got a bunch of sergeant majors, a bunch of E8s that have 10, 15, 20 years in the same organization have been all around the world in combat operations of Beirut, Somalia, all over the world. Very challenging leadership operation. And at times can be challenging to get that organization to move in the same direction. Yeah, but they do. I mean, again, if you have an individual who likes to do things one way and an individual who likes to do things a different way, when you put those two together, they're probably going to butt heads. So they I mean, do. I can imagine the challenge of getting everybody on the same page to do things one way. Well, there, there's a reason why the troop and squadron sergeant majors and Delta are probably the most powerful NCOs in the Army. Um, they're, I mean, they're selected. There's, there's only a couple of them, you know, in the troops and the squadrons. There's only a couple of them. And those guys, when they are selected, are, are powerful, smart, intelligent. I would tell you that every sergeant major that I had that I worked with in command uh, across the plethora of Delta, all of them could have been colonels at that time. You could have put, you could have put eagles on their, their, their collars, and you would not have known the difference. Amazing stuff. All right, let's, uh, let's get to the war on terror, because 9-11 happens. Where are you, uh, both in your career, physically, and, and everything else? Give me the background. So 9-11 happens, and I'm the deputy commander operations officer for a new organization we're building called Advanced Force Operations, AFO. And this uh, is within Delta at this point? It's, it's a JSOC, yeah, JSOC, okay. Delta, SEAL Team 6. It's a little bit of a blend. Gotcha. We're going we're gonna to call it a purple task force. And uh, we, JSOC is out conducting uh, a big operation, training operation, the JRX, and it's really the validation for the AFO concept uh, that had been going on for about six or eight months. And we are spread throughout Europe doing a big JRX. And I'm actually in the embassy in Budapest, Hungary, uh, getting ready to go into a, a briefing with the Com JSOC and the ambassador of Hungary, U.S. ambassador to Hungary, to brief him up on this training scenario. And what we're doing is we're tracking transnational terrorists through Europe and Russia that are supposedly bringing nuclear rods into a uh, a harbor in Eastern Europe that they're going to transload onto a ship and then move them to China. Why does this like sound that? like a James Bond movie? <laughs> well, it is. Oh, okay. All it, right, just of, checking. It, it really is. <laughs> um, so, and unfortunately, we're, we're sitting there and um, one of my guys, one of my communicators comes running down the hall and grabs me and says, hey, boss, you need to come see this. And I run back down the hall and that's the, we're seeing pictures of the, uh, the World Trade Towers. So I run down and um, jump in the room and, and grab the commander of JSOC and the JSOC command sergeant major. We walk back down. He jumps on the red the red phone, which is a, a secure comms back to SOCOM and JSOC uh, that we have set up. And he talks to a guy by the name General Holland, who is the commander of all U.S. SOCOM, and pretty much you know told him he says, "Hey, uh, General Daly, you know get your guys back, get back as fast as you can, uh, you know index the operation." And then uh, he turn you know he turns to me and the commander of AFO at the time, and says, "Hey." Because remember now, we have folks spread all over Eastern Europe and Western Europe, right. all over the place, mm -hmm. doing reconnaissance, surveillance, 
in a surveillance, in a, in a training mode, but we've got folks spread all over Europe. And he just turns to us and says, hey, we, we, had a, we had a Sabre squadron with us. We had C-17s there, the JSOC staff came over. So he says, hey, I'm going back with the squadron. We're going to fly back right now to the U.S. Get your guys home. Get your folks home. And so they took off and we got the message out. We just told everybody, stop what you're doing, collect your stuff, figure out a way to get home. Now, and, and I'll tell you, that's the only organization in the world where you put out your guidances, get home. That's it. You know, uh, there, and there were no questions. There were not like, should we fly? Should we drive? Should we swim? Should we take a boat? It was just, roger that, sir. We got the mission. We'll get home. And uh, for us, for me and my team in Budapest, it was planes, trains, and automobiles. We couldn't get a flights out. Um, so when you say home, you mean back so to like SOCOM and, and back to Fort Bragg. Back okay. to Fort Bragg. Gotcha. Get home. Get back to Fort Bragg. Gotcha. So for for me, it was uh, couldn't get flights out, commercial flights, because we came all in commercial. Um, couldn't get flights out, so we took a train to Vienna, tried to get to Vienna. Flights still were canceled. Then we took a train to Paris. Did Paris for a day. It, it was the Griswolds. It was the Griswolds vacation. It really was. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to remember if we flew out of Paris. For some reason, I recall, but I might be wrong. I think then we jumped a bus to Brussels. And then from Brussels, we were able to catch one of the first KLM flights into, I think it was DC. Or it might right. even be in J, might have been JFK. Can't remember. Uh, but then we got back to the States, got back to Bragg, and then. Uh, and then, and then we kind of sat around waiting to figure out what was going to happen. So when do you find out what exactly what happens and what are you told? Um, actually, it's two days later. Um, everyone's going stir crazy at Bragg. I went for a run. I was hot. I remember it was hot. I came back to my office. I was sweating. And the JSOC commander, Delta commander, and a couple other folks were in my office. And they said, go home, pack your bags. Um Bring your kit, bring your suits. The plane's waiting for you. Fly to D.C. Go see Secretary Rumsfeld and, Secret and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. They have a mission for you. Wow. And I, yeah, that's what I said. That's okay. pretty. That's pretty uh, uh, daunting. <laughs> yeah, and I was a major. I was a major at the time. So I went home. Uh, you know, told my family. Uh, said, "Hey, I'm out of here. Don't know where I'm going." Um, grabbed all my stuff and I went to the Fayetteville airport, jumped on one of our planes, flew me up and, you know, it's kind of a blur now, but next thing I know I'm in the secretary's office and I walked in and it was the secretary, the deaf sec, deaf Wolfowitz, members of the joint chiefs of staff. And I'm in a suit and the secretary says, Hey, are you the Delta guy? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he says, do you know why you're here? I said, no, sir, I don't. And he says, well, the president has given the mission to invade Afghanistan to the CIA. He says, so he says, you know who George Tenet is? I said, yes, sir, I do. He says, your job is to go bridge the gap between the Department of Defense and the CIA and be and, and, and work for George Tenet. Wow. Well, and my, my pause was just like I was there. As I'm looking at members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, four, you know, four stars, there was probably 134 stars in the room when I was there. And I kind of just nodded my head. I said, okay, sir. <laughs> and then inside, I was going, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, yeah, and so you're going, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> and, well, I did. I did. 
And uh, so I said, okay, sir. And he, and he literally said to me, do you have any questions? I said, no, sir. He says, they're waiting for you up at the CIA. So I literally got in a car, brought my stuff, got to the CIA. A uh, couple of security officers came out and said, are you Major Reese? I said, I am. They said, welcome. They grabbed my, grabbed my bags. They brought me up to the seventh floor. And every night at five o'clock, Secretary Tenet had um, what he called his principals meeting around the big table on the seventh floor of the CIA. And I walked in about 15 minutes, about quarter after five. And I mean, every principal from this, I mean, it was daunting. And um, so I walked in, a, a guy stood up and literally said, my, you know, the, my new nickname for the next six months was the Delta guy. Um, <laughs> this, this Not guy very creative. Stood, <laughs> yeah. This guy walked up to me and says, hey, are you the Delta guy? I said, yes, sir, I am. He says, hey, your seat's next to the old man right here. And that guy was a guy by the name of Buzzy Krungard. He was the, he, they called him the exec. Uh, he was a close friend. He was a very multimillionaire, very famous businessman. And uh, George Tennant had brought him in kind of to look at the CIA from a business perspective. He was a very interesting man. And uh, I, I sat down next to Tennant. He leaned over to me, had a big cigar in his mouth, and he says, are you the Delta guy? I said, yes, sir. He says, you know why you're here? I says, no, sir. He says, I've been told to invade Afghanistan. I have no idea how to do it. You're going to tell us, you're going to help us make a plan and Help us do this thing. Oh, you're kidding me. I said, yes, sir. And that was it. Now, now, when you it. hear that, d d d there's two reactions to that, I, I think. And let me just kind of give you the, the unassuming. One is, holy crap, what the hell am I getting into? And the other one is, I have such a, a how do I put this delicately? I've got such a military kind of, oh, God, let's forget. I've got a military boner for this whole thing, right? Because this is the coolest yeah. damn thing I've ever done. Right. So which one was your reaction? Uh, number two, okay. I mean, one, I, one, one, I was very humbled. You know, one, I was very humbled. Uh, it was, it was a great opportunity. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a major, you know, but now literally, you know, I understood, I understood the friction, you know, at the national command level, I understood that friction between Tenet, Rumsfeld and what was going on. Our country had been attacked, you know, um, and I was chosen to represent JSOC and Delta. And I understood my mission. I mean, that's what that's why I was selected. And other officers and senior NCOs, you know, in Delta, um, why they're selected to go do these things throughout the history of the unit, not just now after 9-11. I mean, there have been guys in my places down in Colombia for the Pablo Escobar, in the Balkans, Somalia and classified operations throughout the world. This was just, you know, another milestone for Delta and for JSOC. And so I was very humbled, but I was fired up because now I knew, I understood what was going on, but I also knew this was an opportunity to help me shape, you know, a strategic national event that I knew the CIA was going to need our help. But Jim, th that's that underscores it. You're shaping the history of the world. Like, did you know that at that point in time? Uh, I mean, as you say it now, sure. No, I didn't know at the time because you're, you're there's a focus, there's a mission, right, right. You know, so I, I, you know, I'm not really worried about you know the history books. What I'm really worried about now is is presidents. You know, the president's given a mission. The CIA is going. We're going to support it. What's the best? And what I knew is, what I think was the reason I was selected was, is my personality 
could bridge the gap and break down walls between these two organizations. And, and remember now, you know, I had a lot of experience in the Balkans and the Columbia operations. We worked closely with the CIA. So at the tactical level, I knew a lot of the, the you know, at the tactical and operational level, I knew a lot of those case officers, ground branch case officers that we'd be working with. My job now was is to ensure when I saw things that strategically JSOC and Delta could do for the CIA, that I could figure out a way to not seem like, you know, to, 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 to literally, I hate to say this, be a business guy and sell our capability and get us involved to make sure every, everyone's doing well. All right. So you, you take the job of basically forming, forming the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, now, I'm just curious. We don't get into Afghanistan until the beginning of October, if my memory you know, serves me correct. I mean, did you spend that time shortly after 9-11, that whole month, kind of putting that whole plan together? Well, again, not me, assisting. Well, uh, yes, assisting. okay, assisting. Yeah. So you had, you know, you had the, uh, the group, um, which was called the NALT, the Northern Alliance Liaison Team, that was led uh, by... Um, you know, some very, very competent CIA case officers and ground branch officers. And, um, you know, we started making a plan how to get them in. And, uh, I mean, and remember, a lot of these guys had lots of experience from Afghanistan during the Mujahideen time, you know? Sure, yeah. So, um, did you uh, meet with a lot of resistance from people in Washington? Like a lot of the um, political guys, or no? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't have to deal with the political guys. Was there resistance? Across the spectrum of the interagency, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there always is. I mean, that's. But uh, was that resistance to the plan, or just resistance to kind of you know this director and this director not getting along? More, more at the strategic level. At the okay. tactical level, the tactical level, the I'll call it the interagency. At the tactical level, interagency, the FBI, CIA, DOD, you know, NSA, everyone figures it out. They really do. But at the at the director level ships at you know at, at senior leadership where there's budgets involved and who's in charge and, and who's going to get the who's going to get the credit for it oof that becomes ugly if that makes sense oh I can only imagine I can only imagine the egos that are clashing and what's frustrating is is you hear this right and now we have the benefit of hindsight but you hear this and I can only imagine what was going on on the ground. For people who are in combat, guys like you know me and everybody else who were sitting there with a rifle in their hands, waiting for a decision to be made by two egotistical guys who were really kind of in a you know what measuring contest. Well, you know, I, I would tell you, uh, all of them at the at, you know at that level, all of them um, are, all of them are, what's 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 the best way to describe that? I would say all of them are good folks. Everyone's trying to do the right thing, you know. They're all trying to do the right thing, and but when you get into a group, and you know, our bureaucracy kind of drives this individual aspect, you know. Now, you know, once we got going into Afghanistan, and Iraq, and some of these places, the beauty of the inter the interagency worked. It worked because we were forced to work now, but it, it took a little bit to get going, you know. It there there was some friction. Um, and, you know, but once it got going and boy, I'll tell you what, in Iraq, 
2004, five, six. I mean, boy, those days were, I mean, you talk about a clicking interagency operation between, you know, because at that time, everyone, you know, people said, you're in charge. We're all here to support you. And I don't have to go call Mother May I to get permission to do it. We're here. And who's ever in charge, whether it's a CIA, FBI, DOD, that's who was in charge. Bottom line. All right, Jim, take me back to the initial invasion of Afghanistan. When this whole thing is going on, where are you? Are you kind of watching this thing unfold? Did, did the plan you guys put forth go as planned? Uh, yes, it did. Um, you know, the, the Northern Alliance liaison team with a couple of, um, with a couple of, um, uh, you know, unit guys that, that, that went in with them, it, it worked like a champ, you know, and, and history shows that, uh, history shows that the, the, the NALT teams got in, they made the coordination with the Northern Alliance. Um, you know, one of the key members right off the bat, who is a key member in Afghanistan right now is Dr. Abdullah Abdullah who's the CEO of Afghanistan. You know, he was, you know, one of the number two advisors to, um, you know, the, the, the line of the pants here. Um, and, uh, that's who, that's who the teams met with. And you know, at the same time, you had the green beret, the special forces teams, uh, you know, they went in and infiltrated, you know, the guys in the horseback and, uh, I mean, God, it, it, it was perfect. I mean, it worked like a champ. Um, you know, like I said, history shows that right away, that the initial stages and the initial takedown of Kabul and Kandahar worked like a champ. It was, it was a great plan. Wow. Are you, I don't know if you can answer this, so if you can't, you know, that's fine. Are you at this time directly hunting Osama bin Laden? Is that part of the goal? That, it, for yes, for the task force, for, you know, for all the elements, the counterterrorism aspects, yes. I mean... Um, getting Osama and, and understanding that, and, and I'll tell you, in our and, and through the years, the ability to manhunt, the manhunts were always focused at the top. Now, years later, as we started to get better and better, we find our techniques of manhunting and bring in technology and all these other types of intelligence. We started to realize is, hey, don't you know, just don't focus on the top guy start, start ticking away at the bottom, you know, start, right. you know, the, the, the network because a, a, a top guy's got a network. So you fight a network with a network, but initially going to Afghanistan, everyone was focused on trying to find Osama bin Laden and, and capture or killing him. Okay. So this is the end of 2001 into 2002 that we're in Afghanistan. Um, yep. Now I've read a couple of books uh, and, and done my homework on how close we were to actually capturing Osama bin Laden then. And, and a lot of people may not know this, but we were danger close. Like, we literally had him um, to a point where he needed help to escape uh, back into Pakistan. Um, and, and so as this is happening, and, and we realize that we have him and then we lose him, what is the level of frustration that when, when that happens? You know, it's very frustrated. You know, the guys in the ground up at, you know, Tora Bora. Yeah. Um, again, th th you started to get some friction. Um, you know, there's there's folks from one side that say, you know, hey, let's just go, you know, air assault, you know, a, a ranger battalion on the mountains of Takugar at 14, 15,000 feet. You know, 
and people aren't realize, you know, and this is where, this is the beauty of JSOC, you know, and unfortunately, um, there are constraints and limitations put on your forces, especially when you start using technology and machines like helicopters. And some helicopters are not very good at, you know, flying at 15,000 feet with 10 or 12 hoas on, on board. Um, so those factors, for a lot of guys that aren't used to doing that, those factors are kind of wished away, you know? And then when it can't be done, it frustrates people and you start to get friction. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a tough fight. I mean, people didn't realize what it's like fighting all day, every day in the Rocky Mountains at altitude. Um, you know, so, you know, the aircraft, um, you know, bombing these positions, you know, what, uh, you know, what Dalton Fury and his teams were doing up there in Tora Bora, um, fighting their asses off. And like you said, you read the books. I mean, yeah, it, and, it's nothing new. It's just frustrating. It became frustrating. And Jim's talking about Dalton Fury was a Delta Force commander on the ground in Afghanistan, 2001, 2002. He wrote a book called Kill Bin Laden. And in that book, he succinctly says that he details how they had Osama bin Laden captured. They knew his location. They knew where he was. They wanted to go and get him. But basically, because we had to put an Afghan face on this thing, a Northern Alliance face on this thing, you had two warlords fighting over who was going to be the one to go in there and actually grab him. And in the meantime, while they're fighting over this, bin Laden gets help from the Pakistanis to slip out the back door. But Dalton Fury also asserts that part of the reason that we weren't able to capture him is because the request for more forces, ground forces, was denied. Now, you had said that you had gotten all the support that you needed. Did that change at some point in time? Well, you, you also got to remember that, you know, by that time, you know, and no disrespect here, but you started to now move from a soft-centric fight. Ah, I know where you're going. To, now to some some conventional forces and some great conventional forces you know 10th mountain division you know is now on the ground um and, and you know now 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 centcom is starting to because you know re remember now you know 9-11 soft forces are used to going in and getting out get in get out get in get out and now we're learning about how to do sustained warfare and now strategic global planners are starting to say hey can we really leave JSOC and all these Green Berets in for a year, two years at a time? And again, we're, we are now changing doctrine on the fly. We yeah. really are. And that's a we're dangerous spot to doctrine. be. It, it, I mean, it's, 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 it's not, it danger may, might, might not be the right, it, it's a difficult spot to be. And it's hard to navigate because you've never had to do it before. And sometimes right. you don't know the limits of what you're capable of in those scenarios. And that's where it becomes dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, you've got, You've got leaders, you've got senior leaders. And again, everyone is trying to do the right thing, but this is a type of warfare that, you know, it, it's a, it, 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 it's not chess. Okay. Right. It's like, it, uh, you know, it, it's like playing arena football. Okay. It's fast. It's furious. You got to be thinking three, four steps you know, ahead and, you know, working through our MDMP that we learn, you know, officers learn and, you know, CGSC, it's just, it's too slow. It's too slow. And so soft is very good at that, but now you start to get the clashes of civilizations when you start bringing more of the conventional staffs and forces in. Yeah. And again, guys all trying to do the same right thing, but they're not used to the assets that we bring to the fight, you know? 
Um, now you're trying to deploy conventional helicopters who have never flown in this and flying at night and, and brown out and, and all, I mean, literally, we're learning to fight a new warfare against a elusive threat that, you know, blends in with society. I mean, we are literally learning to fight as we fight. You know, a new, a new warfare. just an anecdote to that for those who listen and those who may not be military who are fans of the podcast. I, I don't think civilians, in particular politicians, ever really bothered to grasp that challenge in combat. This was such a different war for us that we had never fought, even for the conventional forces, right? Because this was guerrilla tactics all the way. I mean, the way we fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, these weren't guys wearing a uniform. We all knew what the bad guys looked like. We were learning a lot of things on the fly. And the cost of learning those things and changing tactics and, and, and techniques along the way means the loss of lives. And, and to people who wear a suit every day and go to work in Washington and civilians who watch the news, all you see is the end result. You don't see the process. And when you lose that process, the end result end, ends up taking a bigger picture or a, a bigger kind of idea than, than what it really is. For us, it's callous to say it's the cost of doing business because when civilians hear that and politicians hear it, that's not what they want to be able to tell their constituents, right? It's not just the cost of doing – those are human lives. Those, those, are, those are fathers. Those are brothers. Those are sons, whatever they may be, and they can't Daughters. accept that. But we, yeah. we understand the nature of the cost of doing business because it's our business, and no one Absolutely. understands our business except for us. Absolutely, you know? But, but then let me swing that back the other way. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate to have been able, I mean, to me, this was, you know, I'll use the term acumen. My, my, not only my military doctrinal acumen, but my ability to understand our nation's interagency. I, I mean, th th it was like going and getting five MBAs at the same time wow. for me, you know? And so, I'll swing that back to you're right, guys like me and you and all the other leaders that are, you know, and former leaders that are listening to this, you know, about the human capital and the loss of lives and what we, you know, our job is to protect those people. But at the same time, you know, our national level folks are starting to think about, you know, because I, I, I remember I remember the discussions. Hey, just bring all the soft over here and we can do this as a soft centric fight. Okay. But then what do we do with all the guys that are looking at the Chinese in Asia, all the folks looking down at Latin America, all the guys watching Russia and, you know, and these guys, all those soft forces that are, are centric to that and speak these languages. Are we just going to throw, you know, all these years of doctrine out the door to fight this counterterrorism fight? And, you know, guys tactically said, yes, absolutely. But then strategically, you've got to look at from a national level and all the way to the POTUS says, I have to protect my back door, too. That's why our armies and, you know, we have the Pentagon, the guys that and discuss these things. And so at the tactical level, it gets frustrating and there's friction between the tactical and the strategic guys. But um, I would tell you from from that year, you know, or, you know, 10 months that I, you know, played in this. And, 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 and was side by side with all these other folks, both conventional and soft CIA folks over there in Afghanistan. Well, I tell you, people were working their butts off and, uh, and learned a lot. They really did. Jim, when you reflect back on it uh, now, coming up nearly on 20 years later, uh, what could we or would we change? What could we do different? Uh, would, would anything have netted a different result? 
you know, I, I, one, we've learned uh, it's really probably if we could have pushed more soft forces in to integrate with um, the Afghans, because the Afghans had to be part of this. They really did. And that's what we've learned now. I mean, everything we're doing now, even at the JSOC level, you know, uh, the, the direct action guys, we're, we're doing things, you know, we are doing things, um, you know, with the locals, you, you've, you've got to do it. So, you know, I, I mean, I think of, you know, going into Takugar with Operation Anaconda, you know, with the fifth group guys, uh, you know, that small element of fifth group and, and trying to work with, you know, that battalion of Afghans as they came around the whale, um, should, should, you know, could we have, should, could we, you know, should have, would have, could have, you know, the old thing. Yeah. Uh, but there's, you know, there's limitations on everything. And at the end of the day, you know, people are our most important aspect of everything we do, but people is, you know, people is, are the, is the smallest minority on the warfare aspect that we have. You were close to getting Osama bin Laden in 2001, 2002 in Tora Bora. It takes us another 10 years to actually kill him. Two-part question. One, did it bother you that it took so long? And two, uh, was the effort to capture him the second time, uh, was that a, a better effort than the first? I don't know if I phrased that correct. I mean, was it harder to do it the second time around, do you think, or the first time? You know, I, you know one, I was already retired. Second, though, I mean, one, I was happy for I was I I was happy for SEAL Team Six, um, happy for JSOC. You know, I'm happy for the nation that we were able to get this guy. Um, You know, for me, it was a little bit. um, I I think any you know, and any any tier one guy between SEAL Team Six and Delta, um, there's there's a little bit of angst. You know, I, I I know the guys would have loved to gone, gone after him. But I would tell you, people have asked me this, SEAL Team 6 were the right guys to go after it. You know, Why? And, well, you know, when Iraq started to spin up, Delta was pulled out of Afghanistan and told to spin up, and we started concentrating on Iraq, you know? And with that, I mean, Delta became literally the subject matter experts of Iraq. And... SEAL Team 6 at the time, you know, kind of, you know, weren't happy about that because everyone, you know, everyone's chasing the, the next shiny ball. <laughs> and SEAL Team 6 was said, okay, you guys stay and you now develop Afghanistan. And I think that was a letdown for them initially because the focus got taken off Afghanistan. But I give SEAL Team 6 all the credit in the world. They learned that environment. Uh, better than anybody and they learned to start blending and looking at different ways of infiltrating and they they did an incredible job over there i give them all the credit in the world and um so when it was time for the jsoc commander even though it was admiral mccraven to make a determination who was going to go there it was really it was a no-brainer i mean the those guys knew the environment they knew what they were going after they knew the target better than everybody and they were selecting it was the right decision to make. Jim, I know tactically and operationally, we are a better, stronger special operations force now than we were prior to the war on terror. Like we've just had to, because we've become so adaptive, we've learned a lot more. As you said, we can sustain special operations forces longer than we typically have before. But that came at a cost. 
it came at a cost of one, there's a lot more notoriety to what you guys do now. People know about it. They want to use it. Uh, and, and two, there is this overwhelming sense that, well, just send those guys in. They'll, they'll just, you know, take care of it all. And it's almost like they have to be the tip of the spear for everything. And that's not what you guys were before. Only in certain cases you were. It's not now that the beginning of every fight starts with, with soft forces going in. So with that being the case now, are, are soft forces and special operations better now or worse or indifferent? I mean, how do you label them? A little bit of both. Um, yes, the special operations forces in the United States are the premier, the best forces globally, bar none. Um, they are, I mean, it's, it's, it's a combination of the New York Yankees and, uh, you know, who are the Kansas City Chiefs right now? I mean, it's the best. <laughs> they're, 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 they're incredible. They're incredible what they can do. Um, the, the, in, you know, what, what I, what, and I, and I see the guys now. I mean, you know, my company's in Syria, you know, supporting uh, humanitarian and stabilization operations, doing demining and the security for that, and working with this, you know, the Syrian, Syrian Kurds. Uh, and, I, and I'll see, I'll see the special operation forces over there. Guys that I know, guys that are in command, were were buddies of mine, and uh, when when I see them now, you know the the technology, um, what they're doing with the local forces, the integration. I mean, it's incredible. It is really incredible what these forces have done. And you know, the thing that, that I really take, I mean, even myself. I mean, I, I can't remember. I can't even count how many rotations I had because it really doesn't matter. But, I mean, these guys have literally spent decades now at war. Yeah. You know, decades at war. Um, but th- that's, also, that's, also, that's, also, that's also tough. It's tough yeah. for these guys. Now, one thing I think our special operation forces have lost, and, and I can't speak for uh, the SEALs from, from, the, from their old days, but I think from the Green Beret, and from the, the Delta aspect, the, the individual aspects, that Jason Bourne, remember we talked about early on sure, about yeah, yeah. the profile? Boy, I tell you what, I, I mean, when I got to Delta, I mean, some of my senior NCO, the leadership, some of the missions that they had done as, as you know, as singletons or as a two-man team, I mean, they're right out of a James Bond or, or Jason Bourne movie right out of it and you sit there and read the history of what happened and what they were doing you're like holy shit that's pretty impressive you know yeah and and i Uh, think just is it because of the need they needed more special operators that they had to kind of open the doors a little wider well well and and again i mean you know they you know all yeah i mean special operations started recruiting more And, and and everyone knows when you start recruiting more faster more people out there you know People will say we're not reducing the standard. Now, I'm not saying we're reducing the standard, but I think what starts to happen is that 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 profile starts to widen. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Starts to widen. So if you've got, you know, if you're between a one and a 10 profile, now that profile might be between a one and a 15, you know? Um, And so, I mean, it's going to happen. But we got to get these forces out there. Does it bother you that that the clandestineness if that's a word uh the ability to be cloaked that was there before is no longer there 
I'm not going to say it's no longer there because it's still there. I just think what you've lost is um, some generations of experience. I mean, there's still some experience there. And I know that especially us, we've, you know, we've captured those experiences and, you know, we know how to, if need be, bring back folks that have those experiences if need be. And, you know, I, I'm, I can just tell you this without really getting into it. Through the years, people have identified that and captured it and tried to get it. But I really think that what it does is, is I mean, even in the Rangers, okay, in the Rangers, there I, I talk about this all the time. The days of me wearing just in garrison, starched fatigues and spit shining my own boots and shaping my own beret and cleaning my room, you know, and buffing the floors. That 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 made me into the soldier I became. Sure. They don't, we don't do that anymore. No. Nope. We don't spit shine boots. We don't press our. You know, we don't. You know, I remember I was proud. I used to get my buttons in my OG 107s, and I had the pockets sewn down. The guy starts the shit out of those things so they could stand up. Because when we were when we were in garrison, we were in garrison and we were proud. We were to the field. We were dirty, nasty, camouflage, and we were proud. And um, there's there's something to be said about some of those old time soldier skills that our, our soldiers today don't learn anymore. You know, there's kind of a discipline factor uh, or, an, and I hate to say it, but maybe some, even an entitlement aspect uh, per se. No, that makes sense. You're not wrong. And maybe it's just cause we're old. That's why, that's the reason why we yeah. do it differently. But let me yeah. pivot to a minute to leadership because that's your, your expertise. Now, did we learn anything about how to make better leaders of people who don't wear the uniform? Cause I, look, I feel like through all this and what you're telling me is that you guys were the right guys for the job that you were asked to do. You had the leadership skills, you had the, the tactical and the operational skills, even the strategic skills to handle the mission, but you're working with people who don't have that same skill set and politicians that people put a suit on every day. Are, are, are those people better leaders now than they were years ago because of the interaction with the military? Yes, they are. But there's a but to this. I I knew that's what I was waiting for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, the military and especially, um, you you know, folks, folks that are selected to work in the interagency, even if they're conventional guys, and there's a lot of folks out there, if they're selected or they go, the, 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 the foreign, you know, uh, foreign affairs officers and, and the JSOC guys that are out there in the interagency, what what they really bring is they bring this mission focused and an ability to plan, you know, and it, it goes all back to, I mean, the one thing I think that I brought to a lot of folks is how to conduct a, a good old mission analysis or the business world will call it a SWOT, a SWOT analysis. But what I've been able to show is, is if you do a great mission analysis and really dig into the elements of the mission analysis, that's all you need. Cause then you take that and you, and you can quickly then put a, an 80% plan together and get out there and move. Cause whether you're in the, the, the military, the interagency world or the business world, you know, once first contact, whatever that is, you know, whatever first contact is, the plan changes. So you got to be able to pivot, you know? Yeah. So, so yes, I, I think one of the buts though, one of the butts, though, that us military folks don't get, and especially I see it out here in the, in the, in the business world now, all these guys want to come out and go, hey, I'm going to save your company. I'm going to, I'm going to teach you leadership 
and how to do all this stuff because I'm going to take you from a hundred million to two hundred million dollar company. And I call bullshit on that. I really do. I call bullshit. There are basic leadership skills that we can teach, but now when you are in, when you're in a political arena, you know, when you are in a business arena and have to think about all the other operating environments in a business that we don't have to worry about in the military, kind of like payroll and insurance and all these type of things that big that the big government takes care of us for us. Um, we're kidding ourselves if we think our leadership skills we learn at, you know, the, the NCO academies and the staff colleges um, are really going to turn turn the tide. They can help, but th there there's a there's a constraint to it also because we don't know some of those other factors that are out there. Well, and that's where I, I guess your company, you're the founder and chairman and CEO of Tiger Swan, uh, kind of bridges that gap. Am I wrong in that? Well, we do. I mean, but I would tell you that, and I speak about this a lot, 10 years now of starting from scratch, my own company, uh, you know, by myself and, and my, my first partner started this thing. And now 10 years, if I could go back and be a captain, lieutenant colonel, what I know now, I would literally change a lot of things, decisions, ways I led, and decision-making. I would change that that way now. I would change that, knowing what I know now from a business perspective. That's interesting because a lot of people who look back on their career don't have those kind of, you know, I guess, clarity in their uh, in, in their decision-making process, you know, like they, they just assume that, look, I did it the best way I could. I gave it my best effort and there's not much I would change, maybe a decision here and there, but you seem to, to indicate that there would be a, a paradigm shift in how you operated. Well, you know, op operationally working in the military, um, one of the biggest lessons learned I would take out is, is when we go in to work with an, a local force, an indigenous force, whatever you want to call it, um, we kind of kid ourselves that we're walking in and we're, we, we base everything off a military model or there, it might be, there might be some law, a law enforcement model that goes along with that. Also, you know, if you're working in you know, like Afghanistan, the Afghan national police, you know, or local police and all that, but, but everything's driven by this military concept behind us. What I would challenge folks is in the military now is, is, and, and, and that's why in the military, sometimes we send people out for a year and they train with industry, which is very interesting. You go out and train with industry for a year or two, then come back. It's because just, just like we say here in the, in the U.S., politics, stability, security is local. It's all local. And even, even the militaries in a lot of these countries, it, it's a business. There's a business behind this thing. And when you're running a business, there's aspects of contracting, budgets, um, you know, who are the power players in the industry. You got to know those things and you got to know how to to work through them and work around them. And um, it's ju you just can't use your good old military uh, foundations and culture to power through those things because it really is a business dynamic that's out there. Kind of a uh, reflective question, if you will, when you look back on everything that you're a part of uh, and see the way the world is now, do you ever kind of look at it and go, 
damn, you know, I had a big, big role in this. You know, like I, I look back on my experience in Iraq, and I, I think I changed lives, but at a very small bottom level. You know, the Iraqis I work with every day, um, I, I think I impacted their lives in a positive manner. I hope I did. But, you know, that doesn't have a grand scale. Some of the things that you were operating on were very grand. Do, do you feel like the impact you made was what you wanted? Personally, no. Personally, I feel that I was part of a team, you know, that made a huge impact. And I really do. Even though, at, you know, for, for a while I was an individual, I was the only guy up there working it. But I had a lot of folks behind me, helping me, supporting me. I could pick up, you know, I, I'll give you a great example. Um, when Hamid Karzai, uh, you know, who, who turned out to be the president of Afghanistan for years, needed to uh, be reinserted back in Afghanistan and, you know, the CIA wanted to reinsert him. They didn't have the, they didn't have the airlift to do it. And I was able to pick up the phone. I heard, you know, I was just in a meeting. I was just listening. I was a little fly on the wall. I, I, you know, I pushed my toe you know, I, I breached every meeting I could get into. And when I did that, I heard them, they're having this challenge. How, how do they get cars out back in and where to go to them? And I picked up the phone. And I had a direct line in the director of JSOC. And I said, hey, sir, we could win big points right here if we could take some of our aircraft and support them. And I could turn to them and go, we'll help you right now. And he turned to me and said, Jim, I mean, they talked about it. Got a quick phone call back. He goes, Jim, make it happen. And I walked back in that meeting and said, I waited. They, and the CIA guys, the, the, the case officers are all figuring out how to do it. And I go, hey, JSOC will help you. We'll fly you in. And they kind of turned and looked at me kind of in shock because now, you know, because now, you know, we're supporting them. And it was a huge, I mean, something as little as that was a huge win for the interagency community because it showed that we had assets. We're not going to, we're not, we're not going to take our assets and run away and, 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 you know, be the, the snobby boy in the corner. Hey, we've got assets. Yep. You've got the mission. We'd like it to be us, but what can we do to help? We're, we're all one team. And that was a huge impact, but there were a lot of people behind the scenes that was part of that impact. Well, Jim, I'm literally in awe uh, of everything that you were a part of throughout your career. Um, I, I, I Look, I've learned so much from this podcast, really. I mean, there's, there's a lot to digest for our listeners. And uh, I think when we talk about impact, you certainly had that throughout your military career. And certainly uh, with a high-profile, high-level job that not many people knew that you did, um, you... you absolutely made the most of it as you said but it was a much bigger part of a much bigger effort and what can i say other than thank you man it's been a learning experience it's been incredible and certainly just uh good luck with tiger swan keep doing what you guys are doing and god, god thank you so much i uh, mark that hey one thank you very much and uh i'm humbled that you guys had me on today and i appreciate what you guys are doing for the veteran community and and, and keep up the great work and and the, and the folks who you've had previously on there with me They've all had a great message, and uh, thank you for everything you do. I appreciate it. Jim Reese, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Yes, sir. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.